Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, libraries have long been a beloved hub of education and community. But as our state and nation battle crises of income inequality, homelessness, and mental health issues, the work of public librarians these days can be just as much about social work as it is about books and information. Author and former librarian Amanda Oliver, in the book Overdue, considers how public libraries have evolved and asks why they've been tasked to fill so many roles in our society. As the country celebrates National Library Week, we talk with Oliver and librarians in California to unpack that question. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Amanda Oliver developed symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder while working as a librarian in Washington, D.C., leading her to ask whether public librarians can and should continue to fill the gaps in our social safety net. While libraries have long been a beloved hub of information and community, they've increasingly been relied upon to provide support for people who are unhoused or experiencing addiction, mental illness, or a range of other crises. Oliver's book is Overdue, Reckoning with the Public Library. And Amanda, welcome to Forum. Hi, Nina. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you on. So what made you want to be a librarian? I grew up across the street from a public library. So my first house that I lived in until I was five years old was right across the street. And all of my earliest memories are of walking over to the library with my mom for story time and to check out books and libraries just became and remained really beloved places to me throughout my whole life and I went for my English BA degree and took a year off in between and was trying to decide what I wanted to do next and I kind of was a meeting of a lot of things I love. I loved writing. I loved reading. I had been working at a daycare center and loved kids. And the next natural step became uh, pursuing my MLS degree to become a children's librarian. And what did you think the job would be? I think I had an idea that a lot of people have of libraries and librarians, that it would be really quiet, sort of lovely work, lots (laughs) of time to read and interact with um, the community and other people. And then I just sort of had uh, the view of my own experience of going to libraries growing up, that it was just this quiet, lovely place that you popped into to check out books. So then talk about what it ended up 
really being like for you? Yeah, so I started out in the DC public schools as a school librarian, um, which isn't really the focus of the book, but uh, there's a lot in there about that. And even that was a surprise, just realizing how much more it was about um, serving the community and meeting some of my students' basic needs at a Title I elementary school. And then at the public library level, the branch where I worked in DC, um, probably about 90% of our daily patrons were folks who were unhoused um, and struggling with their mental health and addiction. And the library more or less functioned as a day shelter, which was certainly not what I had imagined um, the work to be when I first became a librarian. Yeah, you said there were incidents daily. Can you describe a couple of those that really stand out to you? Yeah, there was an incident actually on my first day. I was handed a lanyard with keys to the branch on it, and there was a little plastic piece attached to that. And I asked, you know, what's this for? And my manager replied that it was to turn off the panic button. And I said, what's the panic button? And it was two buttons underneath the circulation desk that we could press that would let um, the Metropolitan Police Department and the Library Police Department know that there was some sort of um, serious emergency at the library. And in my head, I thought, oh, I'm sure we never used that. And we ended up using it my first day when a patron had a psychotic episode and uh, overheard two of the library staff talking about something mundane, but he misinterpreted it um, and just started threatening to kill everyone and throwing items at all of us behind the circulation desk. And we pressed the panic button. Hmm. And it um, by the time the police responded, the patron had been gone, you know, for 10 minutes. And that was day one on the job. Wow. We're talking with Amanda Oliver, author of Overdue, Reckoning with the Public Library, a former librarian. Amanda, what kind of toll did daily incidents take on you? So I write a bit in the book about the concept of empathy fatigue, which Mm. at the time I was working at the library, I didn't know what that term was, but I was certainly starting to experience those symptoms of it. So um, empathy fatigue was first coined as compassion fatigue in 1992 by an oncology nurse who wrote an article about the emotional, physical, and psychological impacts of working in her field. Um, And it's sort of best defined as a state of tension and preoccupation with the individual or cumulative traumas of people uh, whom someone serves. Um, and it's not a term that's been embraced by the, the DSM um, Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, but it's ultimately a collection of symptoms that result from uh, being in caregiving positions. And so some of those symptoms can look like isolating from others, feeling deep anger, sadness, depression, 
um, feeling speechless or unable to respond appropriately to what's happening around you, a lack of energy. Um, and for me, it was chronic migraines and insomnia. And at the time, I just couldn't make the connection between um, how much of a toll that work was taking on me. And I think that was also a symptom of that was just the numbness that mm. I was developing towards everything. And ultimately, you write that this psychic uh, and, you know, physical toll, as well as just all of these incidents that you were witnessing and feeling almost like a first responder at times too led you to ask why, right? Like, mm -hmm. why is this happening? But also even more than that, why do libraries provide so much in America? Can can you talk a little bit about, you know, getting to that point and how you started to approach answering that question? Sure. So I do want to touch on, you brought up first and second responders. And I think that that's an important piece of all of this, um, you know, so the official sort of definition of first responders is any individual who in the early stages of an incident is responsible for the protection and preservation of life, property, evidence, and the environment. And then a second responder is a worker who supports first responders during and after an event that requires first responders. And so librarians are often called on to be both first responders and second responders without the training that most first responders, so firemen, police officers, paramedics, um, without that training. And so when I started to notice how much I was acting as both first and second responder, um, I began to question, you know, how could that be possible without that being a piece of my formal training or um, anything that within the profession I was being trained on? And so once I identified that, I started to see all these other sort of um, gaps and disconnects. And I became really interested in how we sort of culturally and collectively have these very romanticized views of public libraries and who they serve and what they do. And I just started to understand more how much more work I was being asked to do than the majority of people um, recognized. And that sort of led me down the pathway of trying to answer some of the questions that I had. And ultimately, while I was still working as librarian, I wasn't able to sort of go down that rabbit hole the way I wanted to, um, because I was so burned out mm. and experiencing empathy fatigue. Yeah. It, really quick, you mentioned romanticized views. And I did want to touch on that a little bit, because you do reflect on why we romanticize them or what libraries yeah. represent. And, and what conclusion have you come to in, in terms of the fact that we really do tend to have such warm associations with that institution? Mm -hmm. Well, I think they're rightly beloved. It makes absolute sense. And there's nothing incorrect about some of those really warm understandings that we have about libraries. 
but I think there's pieces of that missing. And when we're not aware of the full scope of all that libraries and librarians are doing, then we can't have more robust conversations around um, these sort of questions of how we got to a place where they're also um, filling so many social um, safety nets. Yeah, I mean, one of the conclusions, of course, initially that you draw from the reason that libraries are tasked to do so much is because they essentially um, are are a result, these these needs that the library serves are, are a result of systemic failures, systems that have failed for people. Yeah, absolutely. I, I talk a lot in the book about uh, the deinstitutionalization of mental health care um, institutions. Um, so in the 60s and 70s, there was a shift towards a focus on community care, because we'd rightly discovered that institutions were not um, taking best care of people. So there was a switch towards community care and the community wasn't really ready to fill in those spaces. So that's one giant piece of this. And then there's also capitalism in the form of gentrification, defunding of shelters, lack of government funding for social services like HUD, um, high unemployment, increasing health care issues and costs without universal health care, inflation, bad economy. <laughs> uh, so there's many, many things, reasons and systems that fell apart that we got to this point. We're talking about public libraries, the role that they play, the expanding role, and we'll have more with Amanda Oliver, a librarian, after the break, former librarian. This is Forum. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about libraries and considering why they've been tasked to fill so many roles in our society. We're joined by Amanda Oliver, author of Overdue, Reckoning with the Public Library, and also a former librarian. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. Are you a librarian? Share your experience with us by calling 866-733-6786. Or if you have any thoughts on what Amanda's been sharing, again, 866-733-6786. You can email us, forum at kqed.org, or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Or how do you use your library? Is there something that you want to say about a library that brings a particularly fond memory to you, an experience, or even a favorite librarian? And... I actually want to bring into the conversation now Naomi Jelks, racial equity 
Manager and Librarian at San Francisco Public Library. Naomi, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You know, one of the things that uh, is so interesting about the San Francisco Public Library is that as we're listening to Amanda talking about, you know, the increased roles that libraries are taking, San Francisco Public Library is really credited with kind of embracing and accepting that role, um, being the first to hire a social worker, for example, and really leading that way. And, and so I'm wondering if you could just give us a sense of the scope of services that listeners might be surprised to know San Francisco Public Library employees provide, in addition to, of course, access to books and the internet and so on. Oh, certainly. Um, you know, first I wanted to start a little bit with how I became a librarian. I have a different um, trajectory and a different on-ramp to librarianship. I think um, many of my colleagues who um, became librarians around the same time, like 2010, we did have a kind of a sense of the changing a landscape of librarianship and were and felt comfortable taking on um, additional roles, new roles for libraries as a whole. Mm -hmm. I'm African-American and one of the things that I've seen in the city is um, wanting to really be a part of positive change for ensuring that African-American and other people of color felt welcomed within libraries. And I think part of that work is hiring staff to, to provide that service. And so for me now, as a racial equity manager, I feel really proud that we, we have a social worker here at the library. And she has a small but mighty uh, staff that works here at Maine and throughout the library system to provide additional supports. But I also don't think that the work that our social worker does and her team really covers everything that we do as an institution. There are people who come in um, when we open, some of whom are um, experiencing homelessness, of course, but there are also elders who come in. There are um, quite often people who come in for uh, support in using their various devices, many of whom are elders. And so that's a lot of what I would do on the reference desk. But in addition to that, um, I feel really proud of the work that we've done through the COVID crisis in responding to um, community, specifically in terms of the program that we developed, the Work It program, which really helped patrons, folks living in San Francisco, get back on their feet to find work, to get the job training that they need by way of accessing various databases that we subscribe to. And we also provided staff to help patrons get online um, and kind of learn how to use those databases. Because pre-COVID, you know, there was still a lot of um, folks who would come into libraries who would come in physically, hands-on. Through COVID, we've had a lot of engagement online and digitally. So I feel like when I think of libraries, I think of, a, we do a lot of different things. And the in-person stuff is only a small part of that. And folks experiencing homelessness or financial difficulties are only really small part of the people that we serve here. When you talk about doing a lot of stuff, you're also defining what is a relatively new role, correct? Correct as racial equity manager? Um, for San Francisco Public, absolutely. Because a week ago today, I was on the reference desk. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was um, a reference librarian for 10 years. I worked in the branches. I've worked here at the Maine. Um, but really, much of my work as a librarian, I was the manager for the African-American Center um, for many years. Um, 
a part of the Community Programs and Partnership Division here at the library, um, which really work to connect the library with various um, organizations, school groups, et cetera, to really broaden how, how we serve community and not really taking the approach that we have all the answers and we know how we should innately serve community, but going to community so that they can help guide us and help shape the services that are going to be most impactful for community. So what does it, what does it mean? What does it take to do to provide that spectrum of services that you're describing well? Um, I think it requires a, a couple of things. One of the things that I like about librarianship is the need to be flexible in an ever-changing environment. And I feel like that's a life skill because for, I think one of the things we learned through COVID is you're, you know, you're living your life and everything is cool. And then the next minute, everything has changed. And I think in certain ways, that's librarianship. Um, so I think one of the things that we, we've done a lot of things in response to that is the library. So we have our more traditional services. We offer story times, which are wildly popular. Um, that's, those are programs that happen at all our branches and the main um, for children zero to five. So that's serving families um, and children. So that's one piece of the puzzle. So we have youth services librarians who are trained to do that. Um, we also do family programming. Um, we do, um, we offer programming specifically for, um, let's say veterans or folks who need to grow their um, tech literacy. Um, people who need help writing a resume. I, I don't think that ever, I think every single day I've worked on the reference desk in the last two to three years, I've helped, excuse me, every week I've helped someone create a resume. So there's still some very basic things that we do as librarians and then things that we've, um, you know, fine-tuned in response to the changes going on in San Francisco. Public libraries, of course, are generally funded by local governments. Um, I'm curious, what in terms of resources and support do you need? And do you feel like San Francisco Public Library is one that benefits from getting what it needs at that level to do the scope of work that you do? I think all public libraries are in need of funding. And so I would encourage certainly locally here in San Francisco, the Bay Area, really pay attention to um, measures that are on the ballot to fully fund public libraries. And what that does is it ensures that we have the staffing we need, the equipment that we need to serve community. I feel like um, I have a child who's a tween. And when she was younger, I, even myself, I was entering the profession. I didn't realize how integral public libraries were for the um, youth development, zero to five. I went to story times like a lot of the listeners and they're really high quality um, programs for young people. And I feel like they're invaluable and really um, essential pro uh, services that cities should offer. Um, I know that there is a ballot measure coming up in San Francisco um, to continue to support um, SFPL that I would encourage people to vote yes on. Um, but I think we're also fortunate to have the Friends of San Francisco Public Library who do an exemplary job at fundraising to ensure that we're able to provide um, the types of public programs that our San Francisco public has really grown to appreciate and want 
especially one of our larger initiatives like One City, One Book, um, Summer Learning, Summer Stride program that happens every summer um, in support of families and youth and um, really innovative programs like Connect with Tech, um, the Black and Brown Comic Arts Festival. These are things that happen every year that have high community engagement. Well, I want to read this comment from a listener who writes, I loved participating in the San Francisco Public Library summer reading challenges as a kid. Now I'm constantly checking out physical and ebooks as well as DVDs. I'm watching a bunch of 80s and 90s classics with my parents. Naomi Jelks, thanks so much for talking with us. Really appreciate you giving us a sense of the scope of SFPL's work. My pleasure. Naomi Jelks, Racial Equity Manager and Librarian at San Francisco Public Library. Amanda Oliver, when you hear what Naomi is describing, is that, I guess the question I have is, is that what you think libraries should be doing? Do you think that that evolution is something that, and and also a social justice mission almost, is is where we should be going? Because in some ways, one of the things that I hear you asking in your book is, if those expectations are fair and sustainable. Mm. Um, I loved getting to listen to what Naomi said there. And I loved hearing the the list of amazing things that, um, that the San Francisco Public Library is doing. But I always been thinking, yes, and um, they are still serving populations of people who are um, unhoused and, and really struggling to have their basic needs met. And what, what I would love to see is just, there can be both. We can have uh, the, the library that uh, does has public meeting spaces and author events and book clubs and story times and um, maker spaces. And I think we can also um, have space for things like um, community lockers, clean needle exchanges, um, things that serve all of the folks who are going to libraries. Well, I want to bring into the conversation Jasmine Lobasso, Outreach Librarian at Kern County Library. Jasmine, thanks so much for being on. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Really glad to have you with us. So talk a little bit about the Kern County community and, and what they rely on from their public library. So Kern County is a county library system. So we're spanning about 8,000 square miles, our entire county area. We have 22 library branches uh, across the region. And so each of our communities are very different. But one of our major communities uh, is in the valley. And that is our uh, agricultural areas. So several of our libraries are in small uh, rural areas where local Uh, local community members don't necessarily have access to the urban center and they may need access to Wi-Fi. They may need access to public computers and even just a space to complete homework. There's rampant food deserts in these areas, which is always a bit of a conflict considering we're in the agricultural center of of the state and the nation. So Mm -hmm. uh, there is a lot of needs and we try our best to fulfill those within our resources and ability to do so. Talk about the Lunch at the Library program and why you see that as such a successful one in terms of bridging gaps and needs. 
So the Launch of the Library program, I see it as such a wonderful connector for libraries because at our core, what it really comes down to is that libraries are focused on connecting people with education, information, and learning so that they can become their best selves and be as successful as possible. But when you have during the summer, a large portion of the population, uh, particularly children that don't have access to food because schools have closed, you are seeing families uh, suffer and you cannot help them learn and uh, become further educated and get access to all these wonderful opportunities if they're suffering physically. And so what we do with the Lunch the Library program and many libraries do across the state is we bring them into the library and they eat in the library in a space that I know is traditionally not seen for food uh, food focused, <laughs> um, but we bring them in and we nourish both their bodies and their minds. We bring in collaborative programming and at the same time, at the end of the day, they might get a library card and check out a book. And even if they didn't, they're still surrounded by these ideas and these ideas then allow them to uh, focus on how important it is for their lifelong success. Have you found the library then almost operating at times also as a childcare space for people who really need that? I believe libraries have also always, always to a degree, operated to some degree as a, as a child caring space. We do not necessarily uh, care for other people's children, but we're offering programs and opportunities to participate in those programs in a way that means that there are going to be a lot of children there. And sometimes, especially because different children are at different levels, you're going to sometimes see children without their, their families. And you see that quite a bit in our agricultural communities. Uh, parents are working and so our buildings will be full of uh, full of kids. Uh, and that is a safe space for them to spend time. It keeps them um, off the streets and in a safe environment where they're being uh, surrounded by education and books and encouraging uh, government personnel. And I think I think that's a positive. Uh, however, I, I always say that it's not necessarily a role to watch for children. It's a role to help support their caregivers. Hmm. Well, we've got some calls coming in. Let me go to Rachel in Santa Rosa. Hi, Rachel. Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I want to, if anyone had uh, ideas, I'm a librarian, sorry. I'm a librarian, uh, 17 years in public libraries, love my job, an incredible profession. But the thing that I feel I was kind of lied to in graduate school, they did not train us or prepare us for the realities that you're discussing. And I wonder if anyone has comments or mm. thoughts about the evolution of the training that we get in graduate school to become librarians. Well, let me actually start with you, Jasmine, if you do have one. I know Amanda does probably. <laughs> well, I think that it is true that libraries have undergone major transformation in the last 10 to 15 years. And I think that these issues were there where we are encountering um, major community issues within our buildings, but I don't necessarily think that the shift to really focus on and uh, uh, encourage and support them was as relevant as before. And I think that a lot of people do have a very strong belief that libraries are going to be a quiet space where you're going to just be helping people with uh, maybe reference, general reference questions and finding a book. And then that's kind of the end all be all. However, as a public open space, we're seeing people come in that are experiencing homelessness. We're seeing people come in that are experiencing mental health crises or uh, individuals that need a job and are really, really struggling. And so we're seeing all these people. And instead of continually not helping them, we're stepping up and doing so and becoming flexible in that way. 
But because people are so focused on that uh, more classic nostalgic view of libraries, I don't think it necessarily has caught up with everybody's perception. I think that people in the midst of it working in the profession are experiencing it and are aware, but that isn't necessarily a viewpoint that is uh, realized by everyone beyond the libraries. Hmm. Amanda, your thoughts on training for librarians? It's interesting to hear Rachel say she felt like she was lied to almost in terms of what the role would be. I think many librarians sort of feel that way. And and in research for my book, I, I interviewed librarians from all 50 states and um, with a series of questions. And one common denominator that I saw uh, in all the responses was when I asked, do you feel like your MLS or MLIS degree adequately prepared you for the work? Uh, it was a unanimous no. And a few people chose to leave comments where they'd say, you know, there was one or two classes that were really helpful. Or when I did my practicum, um, I got a lot of information from from that. But ultimately, you know, library work is still very much a boots on the ground profession where you're learning on your feet. Um, and I think that is absolutely something that can and should be changed. And, you know, I graduated from my MLS program in 2011. So I've been um, out for over 10 years now, but I was surprised and I guess not surprised to see uh, that was the response that um, that's sh- still sort of the shared feeling within the profession is that we're not getting um, adequate uh, teaching within those programs. We're certainly seeing shifts and there is, I've only found one, but there is one dual MSW and MLIS online um, master's program that I think is kind of wonderful. I would love to see more um, training offered while we're in the MLS um, to prepare librarians for some of the truer nature of the work. Um, And also just uh, a more of a frank discussion um, while you're still in library school and exposure to what the work is really like um, so that you you can be prepared to do the work on the ground. Well, Glorianne writes, I'm a current librarian at the Buena Park Library and have been in the field for over 10 years. I've worked at other libraries. I've seen the changes in the library world. Libraries have evolved drastically. And yes, for people who haven't stepped foot in the library, we are more than books. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking libraries this hour, and the broad range of roles that they're expected to play and that librarians are expected to play, inspired by Amanda Oliver's book, Overdue, Reckoning with the Public Library. Amanda Oliver is a former 
librarian also with us is Jasmine Labasso, an outreach librarian at Kern County Library. And you, our listeners, are sharing if you're a librarian and what your experience has been like, or if you have memories of a public library experience or a favorite librarian, 866-733-6786, the number, email address, forum at kqed.org. And you can always post comments on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. This listener tweets, I really like the teen hangout section. There are comfortable seats and places to plug in, plus an entire section of reading. We love our libraries in the North Bay. My father was a librarian, so there's a very special place in my heart when I'm in any library. Sometimes I think I can feel him. He passed away from cancer 15 years ago. He taught me many things about learning and finding information. Thank you to all librarians. Oh, thanks, listener. Noel tweets, way back in the mid-1980s, I was a college student at work part-time at the downtown Santa Barbara Public Library. I remember a Korean War veteran, homeless patron, who was there most days and quietly read books. My job at closing time was to check that homeless patrons got out of the bathrooms. Let me go to Jen in San Jose. Hi, Jen. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, I was just remembering that when I lived in Hartford, Connecticut, there were there was a library that um, where a librarian um, noticed that a lot of little girls, probably ages like nine to eleven, were coming and visiting the library right after school because they felt safe going there. And this was probably like 1987 ish. And as a result of that, I worked for a public policy firm at the time, and there was a teen pregnancy prevention program that was sort of an outgrowth of that. It was called something like Weekdays at the Library, and there were a number of different um, mentors, adult mentors, women, who would meet with these girls um, once a week, and they would have um, activities together, almost maybe a little bit like Girl Scouts, but it was, um, they just did all these really amazing things with them, and it was at the library. And so there was like this really deep connection between the librarians seeing and recognizing that these girls were coming to the library as a place to be, to be safe and, um, and, and a place to go. So I just think the libraries have a crucial um, role in the community um, 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 to to be there as a, as a safe place for, mm. for young people. Well, Jen, thanks for sharing that. Uh, Jennifer tweets, what happened to actual community centers? I feel like libraries have taken on the services that community centers were supposed to provide. Jasmine Labasso, when you hear that, what is your reaction? I think to some degree that's that's accurate. Uh, we have stepped up to be community centers for uh, for our communities, and and some of that was a natural, I think, uh, process because we were just spaces that people came to spend time with one another, to learn, and to generally be. So that was kind of natural. But then I think also to some degree we're we're competing with the idea that learning is not just done through a very traditional look at a book method. We recognize now that learning occurs in so many different formats. And so we know that not everybody in our community is going to pick up a book and learn. They may need to attend an event to do so. And so because of that, we've also made intentional efforts to establish ourselves as uh, community areas where people can spend time in. Let me go to caller Tatiana in Berkeley. Hi, Tatiana. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, it's interesting because I I provide a lot of uh, support around executive function. My best friend and I have a tutoring center in Berkeley, and we also coach parents, and especially for kids with ADHD who have lagging executive function. I explain it to them like this, is that we I use libraries 
um, to help them understand how hard things are. Um, because my generation grew up going to the library and going to the card catalog, making sure that the library hours worked for us, looking up information in the card catalog, and then um, having to go find the book in the stack, make copies. Like all of these things organically developed metacognition, planning, prioritizing, organization. And now kids don't have to work so hard for information. And it's robbing them of the opportunity to develop or executive function organically. And so when I explain that to parents, I, you know, I take them back to their childhood going to libraries and they're like, oh my God, that's so true. And so as much as I can, I make my kids and my students work for information because it's actually one of the things that helps develop executive function. Oh, well, that's such an interesting point. Thanks, Tatiana. I appreciate it. Um, it kind of makes me wonder, Amanda Oliver, about how libraries are evolving even from where they are now. I, I, we had Naomi Jelks on a little bit earlier talking about how the San Francisco Public Library is not just focused on the services they provide at the library for people who come in for services, but also digitally, it sounds like. And, and so I'm just curious about that horizon and if you have any initial thoughts on that. Uh, just offer. where things are going to go, yeah. where things are going to go as far as technology. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, the, the question comes up all the time of um, still, and it surprises me, of our libraries still relevant? Will they still be here in, in 10 years and in 50 years? And, you know, my answer to that is always absolutely yes, precisely for these reasons we've been talking about, that they're doing so many things. And, it, and it's not just um, in person, it is digital. And of course, we really saw that during the COVID-19 pandemic when there was such a switch um, to uh, things being online and that included things like digital story time. And so um, I think this emphasizes, you know, librarians and libraries are so resourceful and we have evolved and the profession has evolved and the institution is constantly evolving to meet community needs, um, no matter what those might look like. And I just don't foresee any future where um, people who choose this profession will not continue to be exceptionally um, innovative and empathetic and caring and have a pulse on the community um, and and their needs. And it, it just makes me so happy to get to, to hear from uh, all these folks about the wonderful things that libraries do, and they absolutely do. And um, that's, you know, uh, high praise to to this profession. Well, Chai in the East Bay, join us. Hi, Chai. Hi, thank you for having me, Kim. Uh, I have to say I love your program and I always follow it. Oh, um, and yes, I absolutely uh, love the libraries that are offered here in my county. Uh, I moved from Mumbai, India, and uh, growing up, I loved reading, but I did not have easy access to these books. Uh, there was no free public library, and I couldn't really afford to buy uh, new books all the time. After moving here, um, having my kids, I've always taken them to the local libraries, and I think it has been instrumental in building this reading habit in my kids. Um, the librarian was always so friendly. My son loved mystery books. She would go over and about you know, the, what she needed to do to find him mystery books, Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. <laughs> and 
all the wonderful programs they had, um, science programs and the, you know, reading book programs. I just absolutely adore it. And I have a big respect for all those librarians out there. Oh, well, Chai, thanks for sharing that. Jasmine, it it makes me wonder whether or not the evolution that we were just talking about, the valuable role that it plays, but the need that it has to play so many roles, whether it can, public libraries can continue to do that in your view. And if you had to say what worries you most, what would that be about the library's ability to continue to provide the kinds of experiences that we're hearing our listeners cherish? So I think that libraries are grounded in this idea that we are not going to have specific criteria for participation, that we're not going to turn you away at the door because you're experiencing homelessness or maybe you don't fit certain standards of what should receive service. And because we're grounded in that, I do think that we are posed with very unique, difficult challenges when it comes to properly serving people dealing with certain uh, issues or certain challenges. And I think that that it does worry me to a degree in the sense of, you know, we we continue to need the support to be able to best help our visitors. Uh, We obviously are focused on the idea of early literacy and education and learning. And it does come with all these other elements that we've kind of been talking about all morning. And so because of that, I think just focusing on the idea that we do need that support. We need collaboration and partnerships and we need other uh, departments, other community organizations, other nonprofits and entities to uh, see that valuable role that we are playing and to see our place in it and how we can work together with their expertise. Because realistically, I, I think that one of the goals of today is to to recognize the fact that, uh, like Amanda said, is that we're not we're not necessarily social workers. We are librarians. And because of that, we are doing our best to make those connections because that's what we are is we're connectors. Um, and so I think having those experts come in and work with us as much as possible is critical. Amanda, your book is Overdue Reckoning with the Public Library. What aspect of the reckoning is it that you feel like still, though, needs to be addressed? What are we reckoning with? I think we're reckoning with... Uh, making sure that we are looking at the past, present, and future and potential future of public libraries. And just in my own work, one key piece that I don't think has come up this morning is um, the administrators at an administrative level, um, sort of silencing some of these stories that librarians have to tell. I certainly felt that in my years in libraries um, that I was not legally allowed to speak about some of the things that happened. And and the only reason that this book um, was published and able to come out was that I, I left the profession. And so I think there is definitely a piece there of when we talk about reckoning, that everyone is a part of that reckoning. So administrators who may be removed from the physical library spaces who are making a lot of these overarching decisions, Um, I would like to see, you know, less kind of falling on the shoulders of librarians with this. And uh, yeah, absolutely. This idea of being in collaboration with um, other groups um, who can help support us in this work and and pay attention to libraries really as models of what it looks like when we um, when we allow for real community care. 
We're talking with Amanda Oliver, a former librarian and author of Overdue Reckoning with the Public Library, and Jasmine Labasso, an outreach librarian at Kern County Library. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This listener tweets, public schools and public libraries are in the same boat. Both teachers and librarians are expected to provide a range of services that we were not trained for. Thinking about that connection between public schools and public libraries, we did the show, Amanda Oliver, on book banning and how librarians have been kind of caught in the middle of this politicized book ban issue um, where they've been trying to ban, you know, books from certain schools and not having them in their school libraries. And even to the point where in some conservative states, there's been attempts to press criminal charges against librarians for having certain books on the shelves after they've been, you know, declared not, not good for kids <laughs> by certain officials. Did you talk, when you did your interviews with librarians, was this part of the conversation at all? Or, or did that happen after? Yeah, this actually wasn't part of the conversation, um, just because this, this larger conversation that we're having now um, was about a year and a half after I had finished the book. But um, I can speak to it a bit, just that I don't know any librarians, right, who are uh, in favor of, of banning any books, which is half the battle there. But also in my own work as a school librarian, there were times where books were challenged by um, a classroom teacher and also by a parent. And I had policies and procedures in place um, and sort of a, a legal stance that I was able to take on that um, in defense. And I think um, we are right to be really concerned about book banning, but I think uh, you can put your absolute trust in that folks who choose to be librarians are are going to fight back against that um, every time. Just another reminder, too, of the range of roles that librarians play. Elizabeth tweets, I used to be a librarian and now work in tech. I believe there is a role for libraries in our society, but we don't prioritize them. For example, I was serious about my profession as a librarian, but I could not afford to support myself in this job, which is partly why mm. I left. Let me see if I can get Gina from Oakland in here. Hi, Gina. Hi. Thanks for having me. Um, so I'm a librarian, uh, an academic librarian, actually, and uh, just wanted to shout out for of the a librarian who is going to term of vocational awe to talk about how we see Librarians are the calling um, and libraries as this sacred place that um, can uh, lead, I think, as um, Amanda talked about, to silencing the workers in libraries and also um, maybe seeing libraries as being beyond critique um, huh. and being these sort of uh, these institutions that can do anything, that can um, administer Narcan or uh, COVID tests or things like that and sort of put a lot on the shoulders of librarians and libraries um, without, as we've talked about, or as you've talked about, adequate training um, and preparation. And uh, um, Babaji Itar talks about how this does lead to burnout and undercompensation and job creep. Um, and But also says it leads to seeing libraries as being beyond reproach sort of or beyond critique um, and ignoring that libraries have had a role in institutional oppression, um, for instance, in uh, segregation in the South. Mm. Um, and so there's, um, these are human uh, humans that make up these institutions. And I think it's um, important to see the ways that 
this vocational awe does lead to the kinds of problems I think that the author is talking about and also um, make maybe having us, yeah, put too much on libraries and also ignoring the ways in which libraries have failed their communities and continue to not represent their communities in a lot of ways. Gina, thanks. Vocational awe. And then also, yes, the history of libraries, which is in so many ways your thesis, Amanda, or so much of what you also raise in your book. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to talk a little bit about that history in the last minute that we have that you want people to consider as they consider their public library? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So as with most institutions in the United States, libraries were founded and funded by predominantly white people for predominantly white people. Um, and so this kind of foundational and still widely accepted belief that, that libraries are freedom granting institutions for all uh, effectively denies and erases the experience of hundreds of thousands of Americans across centuries who were blocked from access to libraries. And um, the entire second chapter of my book really digs into um, this history, and I so appreciate that phone call and that we get to end on that note, that libraries are um, not free from all of this. And um, it's it's incorrect to, uh, to not uh, face some of this. And that is ultimately um, my overarching meaning of the word reckoning is we have to reckon with, with this piece of things as well. Well, let me read Susan's Comment, Susan writes, over my lifetime, I've seen how the scope of activities of libraries have changed. It must be such a hardship to be open all the time and allow for free access. When I was in New York City a few years ago, all potential visitors had to go through inspections before entry at the legendary 42nd Street Library. But some years ago, the small library in Campbell, California, one Saturday morning, was filled with young people from many different countries working on their English. And that was extremely heartening and inspiring. Well, Amanda Oliver, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Nina. And Jasmine Labasso, really appreciate having you on as well. Thank you. Jasmine's an outreach librarian at Kern County Library. Amanda Oliver's book is Overdue, Reckoning with the Public Library. Thanks to our listeners for sharing their memories and also their reflections on libraries. And Ariana Prail for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.